So in two weeks, Jeff will start a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, when he's out of the pulpit, a few of us will be preaching from Psalms 90 through 100. So this morning we start in Psalm 90. If you will, please follow along as I read. This is what Moses says to the church through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return men to dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You soup them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God given to us this morning for our good. Please pray with me. Father, you are indeed the everlasting God. And you have been a dwelling place, a place of refuge for your people. Father, we recognize that this morning there may be some among us who are strong in faith, confident on your promises. And yet there are also some of us, Father, who are weak in faith, who need to be upholded and strengthened by your word. So we pray, Father, that you will speak to both the strong and the weak this morning, and that you will cause us, that you will cause your people to stand on every promise of your word as we just sang. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been homesick before? And not just the the feeling of nostalgia that is normally part of missing home when you are away on vacation or something like that. I'm talking about that deep knot in your stomach that physically makes you sick. Have you ever felt homesick like that before? 
Well, I certainly did last week. And you may laugh at this. I was out of town for a week in a place where I felt like I didn't really belong. It was a welcoming, beautiful place to be sure, but it, it just wasn't home. And in fact, it was the first time that I was away from home by myself. So after a busy first day, I headed up to my hotel room to video call Tori and the kids. My heart was pounding, hearing their voices and seeing them on the screen. And when I finally went to bed and turned off the lights that night, I was literally sick to my stomach. It was weird, but I was sick. I was indeed homesick. I missed my family terribly, and I missed my home. And friends, our text this morning, Psalm 90, is a prayer for Moses, from Moses, for those who are homesick. Think about it. What, what comes to your mind when you think about Moses, the servant of God? Perhaps it is his separation from his family as he is adopted into the household of the king of Egypt. Or his rejection by his own people so that he has to flee away from them to Midian. Or maybe you think about him and the people of God as they spent 40 years wandering in the desert without a place to rest their heads. You see, friends, the title of Psalm 90 connects, connects us to the people of God from the past through the penmanship of Moses, the servant of God. And so in this way, Psalm 90 invites us to identify ourselves with Moses and with God's people as they wander in the desert, hoping for God's salvation and longing to find a home. Now, friends, we, we need to remember that since the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, the story of God's people has been one marked by exile down to this very day. That is why we read from 1 Peter this morning, because Peter interprets our lives and the trials that believers face today as an experience of exile. Hopefully you, you heard that when we read the passage earlier. The point, friends, is that God's people are not at home in this world. And this creates a tension for us, doesn't it? Being in the world and not from it, being homeward, yet somehow homeless. Experiencing both the goodness of life in this world and at the same time, its difficulties, pains, and sorrows. There is a tension in our souls, friends, that all of us feel at one level or another. Psalm 90 then helps us to understand our homesickness in this world and calls us to trust and hope in God. And as an outline, I have three points this morning. Number one, the reality of the everlasting God in verses 1 through 2. Number two, the problem of our fleeting lives, verses 3 through 12. And number three, the hope of God's mercy, verses 13 through 17. So with that outline in mind, let's look at verses 1 through 2 first, the reality of the everlasting God. Moses begins his prayer reflecting on the nature of God and his relationship to his people. So in a way, you can say that the entire psalm is Moses' reflection 
on the first chapters of Genesis apply to the life of God's people in exile. So Moses is reflecting on Scripture and applying Scripture to the experience of God's people. And he begins in verse 1 where the Scriptures begin with the reality of God. Look there with me in verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Friends, as far back as we can think in the Scriptures, God has been in relationship to His people. And to be sure, God is eternal. He is everlasting. There was a time when God was, and God's people were not. So that God's relationship to His people is not fundamentally what makes Him God. The fact that He is everlasting is what makes Him God. And yet the the Scriptures do not give us much insight into the being or life of God before the creation of the world. From the very beginning, friends, in the creation account, the Scriptures connect the reality and existence of God to the life and experience of God's people in God's world. The pinnacle of creation is the creation of the man and the woman who exist from the, from the beginning in relationship with God. In other words, to say that God is everlasting is not merely a philosophical or theological exercise. Now, friends, the eternal nature of God, His character, and His works are realities Revealed to us, not so that we will just talk about them or study them, but so that we will treasure them and live them out. So Moses connects us to the everlasting God so that we may trust Him and hope in Him. Because God was and is before everything else, we can certainly bank our lives on Him. Or in other words, as far back as the life of God reaches, reaches, friends, that far and that much, we can trust Him. God is everlasting, Moses says, so we can never out-trust Him. We can never out-trust Him. And as the everlasting God is the Creator and therefore the Lord of the universe. Look again in, in verse 2 with me. God is before all things, and therefore He is above all things. The mountains, the earth, the sky, the entire world exists because the everlasting God willed it into existence. So from the beginning, friends, it is clear that mankind was created to live with God and for God. That is, we were created to live for God's glory, and we cannot live rightly apart from Him. So that is why Moses says that God himself is our dwelling place. This world was meant to be our home as long as the presence of God dwells in it. So that is precisely what you have in the Garden of Eden. God's people, God's presence, under God's loving rule. That is what we have been made for, to know and love God and to be known and loved by Him. And I think that's why the writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Because everything in us, friends, everything 
in us knows that we exist to be in relationship with the everlasting God. And the conclusion is, as C.S. Lewis wrote, that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made for another world. And friends, I, I trust that quote resonates with you as it does with me. Every unfulfilled longing of your heart, every unfulfilled longing of my heart is pointing us to the reality of the everlasting God. You and I, friends, were created to be at home with God. And yet that is not our experience in this world, isn't it? We are not at home. And friends, any philosophical or theological system that hopes to make this world as we know it, our ultimate place of rest is incomplete at best and misleading at worst. Incomplete at best and misleading at worst. And this leads us to our second point this morning. The problem of our sin, or the problem, I'm sorry, of our fleeting life in verses 3 to 12. So we were made to be at home in this world with God, and yet there's a big, ugly problem that stirs on our faces, isn't there? Death, friends. It is the problem of the fleeting nature of our lives. This is what Moses is getting at. I think, in verses 3 through 4. Look there with me. You return men to dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Friends, compared to the everlasting life of God, the brevity of our lives pales in comparison. Moses compares our lives to a flood, a dream, and grass. Look there in verses 5 and 6. You swept them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Have you ever been woken up from the middle of a dream? It is a weird sensation, isn't it? In one split second... Right, the, the snapping of your fingers and the dream is gone. And so it is with our lives, friends. They are indeed like the waters of a flood that covered the land in a matter of minutes, as we actually saw this week here in Arkansas. Or like the witty grass in desert places, full of green in the morning, but gone at sunset. Our lives are fleeting, they're short. And not only are our lives short, they are also full of many troubles. Full of many troubles. Look with me in verses 9 through 10. Moses says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. So, even if we do really well and we make it to 80, the reality is that there will be 80 years filled with toil and trouble. No matter how many times you go to the gym and no matter how much organic apples you ate. 
you do not have to live that long to realize that life is not as easy as it looks on Instagram. Life is full of pain, brothers and sisters. It is full of tears, broken relationships, broken things, awkward moments, sleepless nights, and on and on and on. Our lives are not only fleeting, but troublesome, full of troubles. And now the reality of the everlasting God is meant to be a comforting truth for us this morning. But again, the brevity of our lives and its troubles are a constant reminder that something is wrong, friends. Something is wrong. Things are not the way that we're meant to be. Work should not be burdensome, and yet our experience of any kind of labor, labor includes both satisfaction and frustration. Studying for an exam is both a stimulating experience and yet one filled with anxiety and fear. Marriages are, and families experience both joy and brokenness. There are parents that rejoice in the life of their children, and yet there are parents that mourn the children who never saw the light of day. And in fact, we also have parents who do both at the same time. Or our bodies were created to function in their prime, and yet they slowly deteriorate. We experience aching and sickness, and some of us get up every morning to face the light of day with the permanent effects of a spinal cord injury. Things are not the way they were meant to be, and we know it very, very well. So the question is, why? Why do we, like grass, flourish in the morning but wither in the evening? Why all the toil and trouble? And friends, it's okay to ask, why? The answer in Psalm 90, friends, is that the problem of our fleeting lives is the problem of sin. Now, to be sure, and I'm glad that Jeff pointed out uh, this to me this week, to be sure, Moses is not saying that your specific trouble is because of a specific sin that you committed. Moses here is not giving us a narrow answer to the problem of sin, but a broad answer. He's giving us a reason as to why the world at large is broken and why things are not the way they ought to be. And that broad answer, friends, is sin. Sin has broken what God called good. Psalm 90 does not answer all our questions, but it does give us truthful categories that help us understand our situation and experience in the, in the world doesn't give us all the answers, but it gives us broad categories to help us. Look again with me in verse 3, back in verse 3. Moses says, You return men to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Friends, this language is straight out of Genesis 3. As God curses the man. Do you remember that? For you are dust, and to dust you shall return, God says to Adam. In other words, the consequences of the sentence of death given to Adam 
continues to this day, Moses is saying. The wages of sin is a troublesome life that eventually leads to death so that we continue in some way to experience the effects of humanity's separation from God since the garden. Look also with me in verses 7 through 8. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You see, the problem of sin is that our guilt before the everlasting God is inescapable. Our iniquities are set before Him. And we cannot hide our sin and our guilt. All of humanity stands under God's righteous anger and just wrath. All of humanity. And even if you're here this morning and you don't care about God or what the Bible says about anything, your very experience of life, friend, testifies to your heart that this is indeed true. Something has gone horribly wrong. And so like verse 9 says, all our days pass away under God's wrath and we bring our years to an end like a sigh. We are not at home in this world because through sin, humanity has been exiled or expelled away from the presence of the one who gives life, the everlasting God. And if all this sounds pessimistic, friends, it's because it is. It is pessimistic, if you understand that word correctly. Pessimistic doesn't mean resign or fatalistic. But it does mean that we, like Moses, understand ourselves and our experience in the world according to God's word and what it says about our condition. And I think that is the only way, brothers and sisters, it is the only way to make sense of the deep-seated homesickness that we experience even in the best of times. It is the only way to understand the reason our hearts ache when we hear echoes of what is eternally true and beautiful and right when we watch a movie or read a novel or hear a song that echoes these things. Our hearts ache. And again, I get it, friends. This view of humanity and of life is very unpopular. And at some level, it is downright offensive to some people. The reason is because it goes against the grain of everything our culture wants us to believe to be true. That somehow we can make ourselves better. But friends, the, the history of the world is the story of humankind saying to ourselves, this time we will get it right. But we never do. Why? Because of the problem of sin. The problem of sin is the big elephant in the living room of humanity. And nobody wants to talk about it. So Psalm 90 leaves us with two options before us this morning. The first option is to dismiss both the reality of God and the problem of sin. To simply ignore all our guilt and troubles and sorrow, and somehow to convince ourselves that there's nothing wrong 
that actually life is as it was meant to be. So in verse 11, Moses asks, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And the answer is not many people, not most. Do you know many people who consider the reality of God and the problem of sin as they think about their lives and the world at large? Do you, friend, do you consider life according to the fear of God in this way? So that's the first option, to simply ignore the everlasting God and the problem of sin. But the second option, friends, is to consider these things by faith as we look to God for mercy. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning, the hope of God's mercy in verses 12 through 17. So we saw in verse 1 that God is a place of refuge for His people. Which means that we not only consider the power of His anger and wrath, but brothers and sisters, we also consider His faithfulness and loving kindness towards those who trust in Him. And so we look to God for mercy. First, we look to God to show us mercy today. Today. Look with me in verse 12. So teach us to number our days, we pray, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Friends, a heart of wisdom is the heart that considers the fleeting nature of life. And instead of being resigned to the troubles of this world, looks to God to teach us how to live in the midst of these trials. A heart of wisdom is a heart that fears God before it fears anything or anyone else. It is the heart that leans not in the understanding and wisdom of men, but on the wisdom and power of God. The heart of wisdom looks to God by faith and says, Lord, you are everlasting. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And I trust that you will be a place of refuge for me in the midst of today's troubles. So we look to God for mercy today. But not only to get, uh, today, we also look to God for mercy tomorrow. Look with me in verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Friends, this verse is a beautiful play on words. That word there, return. Is the same word Moses uses in verse 3 when he says that God returns men to dust. You see it? It's the same word. You see, Moses is asking God in verse 13. He's asking God to turn back his curse unseen and to pity his people instead. It is a bold prayer, friends. It is a bold prayer. But that is what faith does. Faith casts itself upon the mercy of God boldly because it knows that God is a dwelling place for His people. It knows that God is a God full of mercy, that God is a God full of loving kindness and steadfast love. 
Do you believe that to be true about God, friends? And brothers and sisters, have you ever asked God how long? How long will I go on in the dark? How long will you remain silent, God? Which, by the way, it's not the kind of prayer that you probably ever hear from the microphone. But it is a prayer that we all have at some point or another pray. How long, O Lord? This question is one of the most asked or frequent asked questions in the book of Psalms. And I think it demonstrates for us what hoping in God looks like. You see, hope is not a virtue only for the, strength, the, the, the strong in faith. But an instrument of grace for those who are weak in their faith. Friends, sometimes the trials of this life literally feel like a punch to the God that leaves us breathless. And when we are knocked down like that, what we need the most is hope. Hope that God will have enough mercy for us, not only today, but also for tomorrow. So Moses continues to pray for the reversal of God's curse in verses 14 through 15. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Brothers and sisters, our fleeting lives are like grass that grow in the morning and vanish at night. But God's mercy is like the dawn of a new day. God's mercy is like a bright yellow sun shining on the earth with rays that never set. And this is what our homesick hearts long for, isn't it, friends? We long for this. We long for joy and gladness that will never end. And friends, there will be a day when all the tears will be wiped away from our eyes. The fleeting natures of our lives filled with toils and troubles will one day give to gladness for as many days as we have been afflicted and more. So finally, the conclusion is that hope in the mercy of God is hope in God's salvation. Look with me again in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. You see, from the very beginning, God's people have been acquainted with the glorious works of God. We have seen God's deliverance of His people at the Exodus. We have seen God's deliverance of His people from exile. And we can now hope, friends, that we will see God's salvation yet once more. And our hope is not abstract, but definite, because we have seen God's glorious work of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has, in fact, answered Moses' prayer, friends. He has turned back the curse of sin. And He has done it in the most unexpected way. At the cross, friends, we see the climax of the world gone wrong. That is, the the world itself turns against its maker and kills the author of life. That is a picture of the world 
gone wrong. And yet the cross is precisely the means that God uses to undo what has gone wrong in the world and to make all things right again. God has dealt with the problem of sin in the person of Christ. And to be sure, the whole creation still awaits the final consummation of God's work of redemption, as Paul says in Romans. But God has turned His wrath away from those who through repentance of sin and faith in Christ, hope in God's mercy. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. So friend, if you are in Christ this morning, God is not against you. How could He be? If He did not spare His Son, but through Him has reconciled you to Himself, how could He now turn His face against you in anger again? If you are in Christ this morning, God is not against you, friend. So we can hope in God's mercy to help us walk by faith as our lives bear fruit that will outlast the fleeting nature of life in this world. We can trust that God is making all things new in Christ and that one day, one day, we'll, we will be at home with Him at last. So that deep knot in our stomach, that feeling of homesickness, will one day give way to joy and gladness without measure, without measure, as we rejoice in the everlasting God. But until then, brothers and sisters, let us pray it with Moses from verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are the everlasting God. And you have turned your face against mankind with wrath and anger because of our sin. And yet in Christ, you have also turned away the curse of death and sin that was hanging upon our heads, Father. Father, you crushed your very Son, and on Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So in light of that, Father, in light of the gospel this morning, will you help us, your people, to look to Christ by faith and to hope in your mercy and loving kindness today and tomorrow. We ask these things, Father, for the good of your people and the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand with me?